Welcome to the Exchange Church Podcast. Feel free to join us live on Facebook every Sunday at 10 a.m. at facebook.com slash exchangechurch. The following message is brought to you by our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. Man, it's great to see you guys uh, in the house of God this morning. We're going to have a great time. If you haven't done so, go ahead and check in uh, to our Facebook page. All of our check-ins go to help us do something good. So all of our Facebook check-ins for the month of January go to help provide uh, a day of school for children in need. Um, Our Facebook check-ins have done a lot, a lot of good in the world. And so we appreciate you being a part of that. I was thinking about watching Jay fight with his glasses. I got a lot of funny stories with Jay. You know, people that don't know him think that he's just, uh, you know, he'll get up here and maybe put on a show. But Jay is one of the most passionate worshipers I've ever seen. And one time, I believe it was at Pastor Kevin's church in Spur when I was playing the drums. Oh, yeah, I was at a school. We were doing a, we were doing a big, I don't remember what it was for exactly, but I was playing the drums, and I'm jamming, and Jay's playing the bass guitar, and he's just getting so pumped up, and he's jumping around, and he steps on a direct box. Wow! Falls into the drum set. <laughs> it was awesome. It was awesome. It was the most punk rock I've ever been. <laughs> I just threw drumsticks in the crowd just for the fun of it. But uh, we're glad that you're here this morning, and, and thank you so much to our worship team. Uh, this morning we are starting, uh, I would call it a brand new series, but it's not a brand new series because we've done this series before. Uh, We did this several years ago, but this was probably one of my favorite series that we've ever, ever done, because it's based out of one of my favorite books that I've read. And uh, thinking about our church, this is one of those things that uh, there's so much information and so many great things uh, to unpack that we wanted to really reiterate all of this and do this again. And it's a series called Irresistible. And it's based on a book written by Andy Stanley. Anybody know Andy Stanley? No? A couple? Good. Good. Uh, Andy Stanley is the son of Charles Stanley, who, you know, he's kind of a famous, popular uh, pastor. Andy Stanley is probably one of the uh, pastors, one of the largest churches in America now, um, and also one of the most famous authors of our generation in the Christian world. And so uh, Pastor Andy Stanley has written tons and tons of books But this book, when I read this book for the first time a few years ago when it first came out, I was so excited because he was saying things that I wasn't sure how to articulate. I wasn't sure how to say it. And and, and the way he just presents it and the research that's gone into it, just unbelievable. And so we're kind of bringing that back. Um, In this book, he really steps out with some of the most powerful teachings that I've ever read, and he really, it's really a roadmap, because at the bottom, uh, the subtitle of this book is Reclaiming the New, everybody say new, the new that Jesus unleashed for the world. So he opens up this book, and the purpose of this book with a story, and he's telling this story about a a time where he and his son uh, went to China on a kind of a father-son duo trip, Uh, they were with a a couple other dads and, and their sons. And while they're in China, they go to uh, an American leather factory. And so they're going on, fixing to go on a tour of this American leather factory. And the owner of the factory sees them and talks to them and says, hey, I'm going to give you this tour. So along for the tour was a young Chinese girl who was in her 20s and had kind of worked her way up into management in this company. And uh, so he brought her in to shadow this tour and to kind of follow them around as they went through the, the factory. So they go through the factory, and this girl's with them. They, a couple of hours later, they end up back in the owner's office, and they're talking about everything they saw. You know, it's just really cool tour and just a, lot, a fun time. And the owner asked this question. He said, well, are there any questions that you guys have about anything? And, and they just kind of all smiled and looked there, and all of a sudden, the young Chinese girl, she says, well, I have a question. And they all kind of looked at her like, you know, well, we weren't expecting you to ask a question. We were kind of expecting them to ask a question. 
And she looks directly at Andy Stanley, and she says, are you a pastor? And he says in his book, he says, I was kind of taken back for a minute because that's not a question I was prepared to answer. And being in China, I wasn't real sure how to answer that question at first. And so he looked at her and said, yeah, I'm, I'm a pastor. And she asked him this. She said, how good is good enough? Wow, she really got him thinking because how good is good enough was the title of a book that he had just released uh, a few months prior. And so, and it was based on a sermon that he preached to his church a couple of years prior to that. And so she asked him, she goes, how good is good enough? And he smiled and he laughed and she pr proceeded to tell that a few years ago, someone gave her a CD and said, listen to this CD. She listened to the CD and it was a sermon of how good is good enough. She listened to it over and over and over. And she looked at Andy Stanley and she said, I listened to this and I met Jesus and I became a follower. And she said, before I was empty and now I'm full. Isn't that powerful? Before I was empty and now I am full. And she says, I, I wanted to start going to church, so I looked for a church, a Bible-believing church, a church that preached Jesus, and I found one, but it's about an hour away, and it's two hours for me because I have to take a bus. So it's difficult for me to get to church. She said, so I found a Bible study in an apartment that's not too far from here, and I go every week to this Bible study. And she said, so I have one more question for you. He says, okay. She asked this, why doesn't everyone in America go to church? That's a good question. Now, this has nothing to do with the pandemic. Now, I understand that, that we're in a season that's kind of crazy. And, and, but she's asking this question way before that. She said, why, why doesn't everyone in America go to church and and that's a great question. How do you explain thousands of empty churches to a girl who would be there every time the doors were open if there was actually a door to open? How do you explain the marginalization of the church in America to, to a millennial who was empty and then she met Jesus and now she's full? She's full and she wants... She wants to be a part of that movement, whatever that was. And she sees America, and she's like, why doesn't everybody want this? Why? Why is it everybody want theories? Why doesn't everyone in America go to church? So the question for the series, and, and I, I hope that question maybe made you think a little bit. I hope maybe it bothered you. The church become so resistible. Why is it so easy to not? want to go to church and not like church and, 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 and say, well, I love God. I just don't have to go to church. Why is that so easy? Because at one time, Jesus was not resistible. He was irresistible. And at one time, believe it or not, the church was irresistible. The church itself. And I've talked to a lot of people. I've read interviews and blogs and and heard tons and tons of stories about people who, who finally left the faith and stopped believing. And 99.9% .9 of those people left the faith, and it had nothing to do with Christianity or anything directly related to Christianity. They leave for other reasons. Offense and, and angry and mad or whatever. I recently read an article a while back from a former worship leader. And she writes in this article that she left the faith when she read a book proving that there are contradictions in the Bible. Apparently, she grew up believing that the foundation of everything that we believe is based on a faith that has a non-contradicting book. But it's not. That's not our foundation. That's not what it all is about. Uh, one of the most renowned Christian scholars in the world, he recently said that he lost his faith due to the suffering in the world. And he couldn't take it anymore. But the foundation of our faith is not a world without suffering. In fact, 
the, the suffering doesn't disprove the existence of God. It only disproves the existence of a God who doesn't allow suffering. What kind of God is that? That's not our God. Our God, unfortunately, kind of promised that there would be suffering. So natural selection doesn't undermine the claims of Jesus. Neither does a 13.8 billion year old universe. And if anything in this intro right here has made you kind of cringe or wince just a little bit, then you're in the right place today. And I'm so glad that you are here. Welcome again to the exchange. And for those watching online, no one has left the building yet. <laughs> but today and throughout this series, this series just lit something, lit a fire inside of my spirit. Um, and so today and throughout this series, we want to reintroduce to you or maybe introduce to you for the first time a better, ro more robust version of your faith. And to be clear, this is not a new version. It's certainly not original with us today. It has been hidden in plain sight in the Gospels and in the epistles of Paul all along. And it has worked already. And I'll prove it to you. So once upon a time, now I'm going to start my sermon, so that was the intro. So once upon a time, the members of a Jewish cult called The Way, against all odds, captured the attention and ultimately the dedication of the pagan world inside and outside of the Roman Empire. So let me pose this question, or you could say, riddle me this. How did a religious cult birthed in the armpit of the empire whose leader had been rejected by his own people and crucified as a wannabe king, how did it survive in the face of overwhelming resistance? Because in the beginning, it was all resistance. It wasn't easy. It wasn't free. It wasn't just, you know, if you want, it was unbelievable Resistance. How is it that that same upstart religious cult called the way would eventually be embraced by the very empire that sought to extinguish it in the first place? So what did these first centuries out? What did they know back then when it was so difficult to get this message out? What did they know back then that we miss, that we don't? What made their version of our faith so compelling, so resilient, and so irresistible? So how did Christianity survive the first century? It should have been buried with its founder, Jesus, but it wasn't. Think about it. Today, if you go to Rome, if you go to Jerusalem, Rome is adorned with crosses everywhere you go. If you go to Jerusalem, it's packed full of Christian tourists, tourists who are looking at the city. 2,000 years ago, if you would have went to Rome, had crosses. But the crosses then symbolized the power of the empire. It was the power of the empire. But now the crosses, when you see them in Rome, it is the symbol of the power of God. What changed? How did this happen and could this happen again? But to reclaim the clarity and the irresistibility of the early church, then we have to kind of come to terms with something that might be a little bit different for some people. Jesus came to introduce something new. Everybody say new. Okay, Jesus came to introduce something brand new. And it was the new that he came to introduce that made him practically irresistible. It was irresistible to people. It was irresistible to people that heard him teach because the new was so powerful. It was so unbelievable. I think I said it last week. It was too good not to be true. It was awesome. People who were nothing like him, loved him people he liked people who were nothing like him he was loved by the unrighteous but he was always viewed 
as a threat to the self-righteous. In fact, if you grew up in church, and and how many of you grew up in church? A lot of you? So you kind of grew up in church. So if you did, if you grew up in church and you've heard a lot of the Gospels and the, the Bible stories, then you understand that the most prominent narrative as you read through the Gospels and the New Testament, when Jesus enters onto the scene, uh, you find it everywhere is the insistent conflict between Jesus and religious leaders. That was the biggest conflict. That was, that was most of Jesus' life. When you read all the Gospels, most of the things that you read about is the conflict and the butting of heads between Jesus and the religious leaders. And it's almost impossible for us today to wrap our head around why the Pharisees, why the Sadducees, and why the teachers of the law hated Jesus so much. Have you ever really thought about that? I mean, these are the teachers of the law, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, the teachers of our Old Testament. Why did they hate Jesus? Why couldn't they just agree to disagree and still be agreeable? Have you ever thought about that? They not only didn't agree with him and couldn't even agree to disagree with him, they hated him so bad that they plotted and planned his arrest and his execution. That seems a little bit over the top to us, doesn't it? And, it, and honestly, it seemed a little bit over the top to Pilate back then. They actually had good reason to fear Jesus when you think about it. They saw something that a lot of times we in America today, we miss. They didn't see Jesus as Judaism 2.0, but they rightly understood him to be a threat. And, And he was a threat to everything, as in everything that they valued. And, and if, you've, if you've come to the exchange for any amount of time, you have heard us say these things over and over and over. If, if what Jesus claimed was true, then what it was was it was a signal to the end of, not a new version of, the world as they knew it. If what Jesus was saying was true, then everything that they've ever believed was coming to an end. And and this was unacceptable. This is generation after generation after generation after generation that have been taught and preaching and proclaiming a a certain way. And Jesus is coming, and if he's right, then everything that they've done is going to change. It's going to end. That's why they hated him so bad. To us modern Christians, we see Jesus as an extension or a fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures, the law and the prophet, the Old Testament. Jesus came to fulfill that. But the Jewish leaders of that day did not see him as an extension or a fulfillment of anything. They rejected him. They rejected even the idea that he might happen to be the fulfillment of some of the prophecies that prophesied directly about Jesus. From their vantage point, Jesus was introducing something new. And in this way, they were correct. One of the most offensive statements recorded in Matthew's Gospels, if you've ever read it, chances are you probably read it and just kind of skimmed over it because you didn't think about it too much. Because when we read it, it doesn't seem that big of a deal uh, being on this side. But you certainly probably weren't offended by it when you read it. But during one of his many squabbles with the religious leaders, they're arguing over a violation of the Sabbath day. And they get Jesus is facing with these religious leaders. And they get in kind of this argument. And so Jesus makes this statement. Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, he says, I'll tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Ooh, wow, that's so offensive, right? No, you're not offended. You're not, it doesn't bother you. We, see, it doesn't, we just kind of skim right over that. That was one of the worst possible things that anyone could say to a religious leader in the first century. I mean, unbelievable that he had the gall to say, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. 
you ever noticed that statement before? Maybe not. For first century Jews, nothing and no one was greater than the temple. If there was something greater than the temple, then the temple was pointless and useless. And for first century Jews, the temple was at the center of the world. Not just their world, but the center of the world. And the temple was at the epicenter of the religious Jewish life. Their whole life. Everything that they believed and thought and taught. And the way that they walked, the way that they talked, the way that they dressed, the way that they acted, all revolved around the temple. And for someone to come into my house, and my country, and my city, and my town, and to tell me that something greater... See, I was thinking of things I could say this morning to help you relate, offensive things I could say to you, but I'm not going to go go there. I'm going to try for us all to leave peacefully this morning. It was going to be about sports anyway, so don't, don't get it. But, but this was a big, big deal that Jesus would make this statement. The temple was the official home of the law. Okay. The temple was the home of the presence of God. And to compare oneself to the temple or to suggest that anything was greater than the temple reflected extraordinary arrogance, extraordinary ignorance, and possibly insanity. Temporary or long-term, I don't know, but insanity. To think that way. And to proclaim that he was greater than the temple would imply that the temple was temporary. Which turns out it was Jesus' point exactly that the temple was temporary. That the temple system was just temporary. In fact, we're about to discover that the temple was never even God's idea to begin with. And now this represents our first major departure from the storyline that probably most all of us grew up with. So to support this, we're going to go back in time. We're going to go back into the days of Abraham and after a brief layover with King David and his son Solomon. So now, as you probably know, and we have spent four or five years kind of preaching and teaching this exactly, and so some of this is going to sound really familiar to you, but as you probably know, it was never God's intention for Israel to even have a king. You don't have to raise your hand, but kind of nod if you, if you kind of heard that before. It was never God's intention for Israel to have a cool kids. All the other nations, he was the only king. But all the other cool kids, all the other nations, they had kings. And so Israel wanted a king. Okay? All the other nations have kings. Why can't we have a king? We want a king. And, and so we want a king. Everybody else has a king. We want a king. And we're not eating dinner until we get a king, right? It's kind of that temper tantrum. I'm not exaggerating a whole lot. That's a lot of how it went. In fact, his, this was their words in 1 Samuel chapter number 8. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go into battle before us and fight our battles. It's what we want. Right? We want a king. We want a king. But of course, God never intended Israel to be like all the other nations. God intended for Israel to stand out from all the other nations because God was planning on doing something through Israel for all the other nations. From the beginning of time, God had a global purpose for the nation of Israel. In fact, God's global plan was first revealed around 2000 BC when God promised Abraham a son that would become a nation and through that nation God would bless the entire world okay I'm gonna say this again God made a promise to Abraham that he would have a son and through that one son a nation would be birthed And through that nation, come on somebody, this is going to start clicking eventually. Through that nation, the entire world would be blessed. Here's what God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He said, I will make you into a great nation. 
and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This had to sound pretty ridiculous to a man who had no people standing in the middle of nowhere, but there was something unusual about this promise. God promised to bless the world through Abraham's descendants. Man, you want to talk about a big promise. That's probably one of the biggest promises you have ever heard in your entire life. I'm going to bless the entire world through you. Now, back in the days, ancient tribes and and nations, they didn't go around generally blessing other nations, okay? That's not really the way it worked, they, other nations. It wasn't typical to go around blessing your neighbor nation, right? And, and modern day, today, it's not really a whole, whole lot different. You know, we spy on, we conspire with or against, we, we post sanctions on. So we don't generally bless each other either. The point being, we can't begin to imagine how ridiculous that promise must have sounded to Abraham. Right? But as you know, those of y'all that grew up in church, Father Abraham had many sons. Anybody? Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. So you, now, I'm, now I'm calling out the liars who really didn't grow up in church because you don't know the song. I'm just playing. Don't get offended and walk out. This is just a joke. But the point is, is we know that Father Abraham had children. And those children began to have children. And, and they grew. And eventually, he had some people who eventually migrated to Egypt. And while they were in Egypt... They became enslaved. Eventually, those people multiplied so much that they became to nation status. While in Egypt, when they become nation status, if you're the host nation, that makes you a little bit nervous, doesn't it? If you got all these people and they start growing and they kind of become a nation status on their own. But instead of kicking them out, what Pharaoh does is he puts them to work as slaves. Genius. Now, it's difficult to bless all the nations of the world when you are making bricks as a slave for the most powerful man in the universe. Amen. I mean, Pharaoh. Right? See, I dated myself there. Half of y'all are like, well, I don't even know what that means. It was a cartoon that I wasn't allowed to watch because it had a skeleton devil. <laughs> you're getting me off track. Focus, focus, ADD, rabbit, squirrel, okay, I'm back, but listen, so, but unlike Egypt's gods, Abraham's God, God was mobile, so when Abraham's God was good and ready, what happened was God came in, tapped Moses on the shoulder as his representative, sent Moses to Pharaoh with the famous line that we all know, what was it? Yeah, let my people go, okay? We, are, we know that line. And so Moses goes in. He says, let my people go. Now, I'm not going to go into that whole story. But after some arm twisting and some locusts and crazy stuff, eventually Pharaoh lets them go. All right? Now, I'm going to fast forward. They, they go, and they, there's tons of, of things that happen in between. They eventually end up in the promised land. They eventually arrive in the promised land. But once they arrive, they didn't do much in the way of blessing the inhabiting nations. They conquered and on a few occasions even plundered their way to dominance in that entire region. Then, after several generations of operating as a loosely formed theocracy, the elders thought that it was finally time that they become like all the other nations. And that's when they go to Samuel. And they said, Samuel, we want a king. Everybody has a king. Yeah, they have a king. They have a king. They have a king. They have a king. We want a king. And so the prophet Samuel, he goes and he, he anoints Saul. And there are so many, so many, you know, I'm 
flying through this story. It, there's so many other things that are happening as, as a part of this story, but they anoint, Samuel anoints Saul as the first king of Israel. And as you probably know, if you heard some of these stories, it was a disaster. Saul was a, kind of an awful king, okay? Most of the kings of Israel were a disaster, if you really think about it. They cost Israel so much in treasures, so much in blood. I mean, it was really, really a tough season. But finally, Israel was like all the other nations. They had a king. As you know, David follows Saul as the second king of Israel. David is now the new king. He was anointed by God to be the new king of Israel. He comes into power. One day, it dawns on David, you know. We have a king. I'm the king. All these other nations have kings. But all these other nations have something that we don't have. They have temples. They have temples for their gods. We need a temple. We're going to have a temple. I'm going to build us a temple. So up until this time, God's kind of been a Boy Scout of sorts. He's, he's lived in a tent and uh, kind of gone to Now, it was a nice tent, but it was still a tent. It's called the tabernacle. It's still a tent, I'm just saying. <laughs> but, but like Israel didn't need a king, they also didn't need a tabernacle either, and for the same reasons. They already had a king who could not be contained in a dwelling made by man. Besides, Israel lacked one simple ingredient for all the other well-equipped temples in the region. An image. All the other temples, Israel's God didn't have a physical image. God. Well, Yahweh didn't have an image. Israel's God didn't have a physical image or representation. And we know that the temple wasn't God's idea because when King David actually introduced the idea to God, here's how God responded through the prophet Nathan about having a temple in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God says this, I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. And then he reminds David, you know, through this, that he's a mobile God. And, and, but this is the best part. He goes on, he says, Wherever I moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, God was fine with living in a tent. In, in fact, it would really seem that he preferred that. He preferred being the mobile God, that he wasn't just, just locked into a place, a single place. It was a visible reminder that he was not just a regional God like all the other gods, but he was everywhere. And he was a mobile God. And if you don't believe, ask Pharaoh. So there's something else in play here. Everything about the tabernacle, the tent, it was temporary. It was constructed primarily of linen curtains and goat hair curtains and wood. And, and it was in constant need of repair. The portable and temporary nature of the tabernacle actually underscored the point of the tabernacle. Everything about it, everything connected to the tabernacle was a sign that pointed to something greater and grander coming in the future. It was all just temporary. It was all meant to be temporary. The tabernacle was a means to an end. And in the end, the need for a tabernacle would also end. It wasn't meant to be there forever. Be around for. There was a future coming that they didn't understand. They didn't know the tabernacle was really... God is pointing them this direction. So the need for this permanent tabernacle was really unnecessary. God was fine with his temporary digs. Why? Because the sacrificial system and everything associated, associated with it was temporary. 
And in the end, God tells David, listen, David, here's the thing. I love you. You're great. You have too much blood on your hands to do this. You have too much blood on your hands to build a tabernacle. And so David agreed. David said, okay, fine. So what David does is David begins to, to store up treasure. He begins to make plans. He begins to put everything in order so that when David goes out of the throne and Solomon comes into power, then Solomon could build, his son could build the, the temple. And that's exactly what happens. David comes out of power. Solomon comes into power. And the first thing Solomon does is what? Any guesses? You guys are the smartest church I've ever seen. Yeah, exactly. Solomon comes into power, and he builds a temple. And you know how long it looked? It took 20 years. <laughs> Longer than the Grand Parkway or, or 288. I mean, those take forever. <laughs> Imagine a 20-year temple. It took forever. And, and so Solomon comes into power, and he starts to begin the, temp, the temple. Now, at the end of those 20 years, Solomon has this conversation with God. And this is awesome. He has this conversation with God, and he says, God, you know, I've got the temple built, and I want you to come in. I want you to move into the, the temple. I want you to move out of the tabernacle. I have this place for you, this permanent place for you. And ultimately, God does. He moves into the temple. But before he does, he has a conversation with Solomon that should have sent chills down his spine. It should have sent Solomon on the straight and narrow path, but it didn't. Should have, but it didn't. God kind of gives Solomon the, before I hand you the keys to this car talk, you know, those of you that have kids, or maybe some of you remember having kids, you know, before I give it, like, like the talk with my daughter went like this, Jenica, I am so happy to give you the keys of this car, which is still in my name. I, I say that to her all the time. I'm so happy to give you the keys to this car, which is still in my name. And I want you to enjoy it. But if you ever abuse this freedom in which I'm giving you, she gone. Okay? She gone. You understand? But I love you, boo. But I'll take it away from you. Just as fast as I'm giving you these keys, I'll take them away from you. Right? And so that's kind of the talk that, that God has with, with Solomon. He has this talk, and, and if you don't believe me, you can go to uh, 1 Kings chapter 9. Here's a little bitty taste of, of what God tells Solomon. He says, This temple will become a heap of rubble, and all who pass by will be appalled and will scoff, and they will say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? So God is saying, listen, while I'm grateful for the temple, while I appreciate the gesture and what you've done to build this temple, God was not just committed to staying there under any circumstances, okay? God was warning him and preparing him. Listen, if you become unfaithful, don't think for a second that I'm locked up in this temple while you can go out and do God knows what with God knows who. You know what I'm saying? He's saying, so I'm going to come, and I'm going to move into the temple, and I'm going to be your God. But don't get funny on me. The temple was a nice to have, but it was not a necessity. It wasn't necessary. It was kind of nice in the fact that the temple was more beautiful than it actually was necessary. So Solomon becomes king. God moves into the temple, and you know what? There's peace in the land. There's like the season of peace. Now, from the looks of thing, that would be a great time for God to go ahead and fulfill the promise he made to Abraham because he made Abraham a promise that he was going to have son and through the son there's going to become a nation and because through that nation God was going to bless all the world, all the peoples of the world. Now there's a season of peace, Solomon's in power. But God doesn't use them to bless all the nations of the world yet. Because Solomon's got a little girl problem. Because Solomon started taking on wives. Now, Solomon built this incredible temple for God. But then he started marrying these, these foreign women of royalty. 
And so not only did Solomon build a temple for God, he started building these mini temples for the gods of his foreign wives. How many, you ask? I'm so glad you asked. Thank you. It's a great question. 700. <laughs> 700. About 700 wives and tem mini temples, places of worship. Solomon built. I mean, I, I, I'm just going to throw this out there. Today in 2021, if we hear that a pastor had like a moral failure or said something crazy, whatever, we just cut them off. We won't ever listen to them again. It doesn't matter if they've had restoration or whatever. We're done with them. But yet we take, marriage, we take marriage advice from a man who had 700 royal wives and worshiped all of their gods. Just saying. Just saying. I'm not saying it's not good advice. I'm just saying. Throwing that out there. The author of 1 King tells us that Solomon had 700 wives of royal birth, and he built altars and shrines, houses of worship for each of the gods worshipped by his foreign wives. To add to that, at the end of Solomon's life, not only had Solomon built all of these altars and houses of worship for all these wives, but Solomon began to worship alongside of all of these wives. I think somebody forgot the before I hand you the keys talk, right? Because God warned him about this. Nevertheless, as you can see, Israel was in no position to bless the other nations of the world. In fact, by the end of Solomon's reign, Israel looked just like all the other nations of the world. Solomon forgot his promise to God. However, Remember this, God never forgot his promise to Solomon. 587 B.C., after a bloody siege, and we preached, I preached a message on this not too long ago when they cut a hole and tunneled under the wall, Nebuchadnezzar's soldiers poured through a breach in Jerusalem's walls, murdering thousands of citizens and enslaving thousands more, Nehemiah being one of those tore Solomon's temple down and its foundation. Fortunately, God was not at home that afternoon. Actually, God hadn't been at home in a long time when the temple was destroyed. So, eventually, fast forward, the temple was eventually rebuilt. About 538 B.C., Emperor Cyrus the Great has the Jews returned to their homeland, and he ordered them, I want you to rebuild the temple. And he told them how to build it. Smaller. <laughs> smaller. I want you to rebuild the temple. You're going to build it smaller. So they did. When the foundation of the temple was complete, you, you can read this in some of the scriptures, but you can really read this uh, through a lot of historians' writings of this time period. People who used to ha had seen the temple in the past would pass by, see how small and not grand the temple is now, and they would weep aloud. Because it was a reminder of how far Israel had fallen. It was sad. So now they're to build this new temple, and it's supposed to be little, just a temple. Perhaps the most disappointing of all, according to this text, is that they build this new temple, and God never moved in. He was done with temples. It wasn't his idea to begin with, but, but God was done with temples. But he still hadn't forgotten his promise to Abraham. So throughout this turbulent period of Israel's history, God would send prophet after prophet after prophet. And you can read all about it through, throughout the Old Testament. They come in and they remind Israel constantly that God is not done. That God is not done. He's not finished with them. That he's still going to use them. That Israel is still the vehicle that God is going to use to bless all the peoples of the world. And in the 5th century B.C., prophet Malachi steps onto the pages of history. And he kind of puts a book into what we would call the Law and the Prophets or the Old Testament. So Malachi comes in uh, at the end of, of, of what we would call the Old Testament. And he has a prophecy. Malachi said, let it be known that God was still committed. He wanted to remind the people God was committed to using Israel. 
that God wasn't done with Israel, that God was going to fulfill his promise that he made to Abraham. So speaking on behalf of God, Malachi said this in Malachi chapter 1. He said, my name will be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sits, and every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord all God. Lord God Almighty. Then you skip down to chapter number three. He says this, I will send my messenger. Oh, this is where it gets good. This is where it gets good. He says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord that you are seeking will come to his temple. Woo! That gives me goosebumps. Okay? See, God didn't move into the temple when they rebuilt it. But in this prophecy, Malachi says, the one that you're looking for, the one that you've been seeking, he's going to show up. He's going to come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. The end, Malachi turns off the light, shuts the door, and disappears into the desert. There's four, really, but it seemed that way because at the end of that, when Malachi is done, there's 400 years of basically silence. No prophets, no big words. There was a couple of prophets, but nobody that the, the Israelites took seriously. And it's just silence, quiet. Some people believed that, that during that time period that God had forsaken them and that God had left them. But that was not the case. Just because God was silent didn't mean that he was still. Okay? God was still moving and he was still working things out. Then the Apostle Paul, he captures the, this tension perfectly as the New Testament begins up, okay? As, as we start reading the Gospels and the Epistles and the writings of Paul, Paul captures what's going on at the end of Malachi to the beginning when Jesus starts to arrive, and he writes this, and it's so perfect because Paul understands that God was at work the whole time. Even through the 400 years of silence, God was at work, and God was waiting for everything to be in the right place and the right time because God never forgot his promise. Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 4. He says, but when the set time had fully come. Oh, man. This is it. That's, this is where it just starts. This, this line right here changes everything for us. This is a history-making line that Paul is writing here. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Up until this point, they had no clue. They were slaves to the law. They were orphaned. They, they had such a misunderstanding and a misconception uh, of who God really was. But at the set time, when the moment, the set time had fully come, God sent Jesus, his very own son, born of a woman. He sent him born under the law so that he could redeem those under the law so that they could all become sons and daughters and not slaves and not orphans. That was the promise. Wow, that's the promise. When no one expected it, when most people had given up, when Rome had gone from being a Roman republic, transitioning into the Roman Empire, God moved. A carpenter discovers his fiance is pregnant while trying to decide what to do about this because this was a big deal. An angel comes to him, speaks to him in a dream, and says this familiar word most of you have heard. Joseph... Son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. When you skip forward and John starts to talk. John, he kind of gives us a definition of 
of what he's talking about when he says sins here. Missing the mark. Missing the mark of the law. He's not talking about bad words and this and that. He's talking about missing the mark, not being good enough. He says Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. This was it. The wait was over, and and you can imagine the stories that had been told from Abraham. You know, God made a promise to Abraham, and generation after generation after generation, the stories were told, and it was being fulfilled. They became a, a, a small group of people that became a tribe that became a nation and now the moment is finally here God's promise to Abraham would be fulfilled and the nations on earth were on the verge of being blessed through this nation as a part of the process God would visit the temple one last time but not as a cloud this time he would show up as a Galilean day laborer turned rabbi and a rabbi who would start a fire that neither the temple or the empire could extinguish a rabbi who would start a movement that was so strong and so powerful that even though everyone seemed to reject it at one time when Jesus died there were no believers there were no Christians there was sudden that same startup religion begin to move, and it still moves today. Did you know that over one-third of the population of the world acknowledges Jesus Christ as Lord? I'm not here to debate how many of those live it or exemplify it, but I would tell you that for a startup religion that was doomed to die from the beginning, that had no chance. I mean, think about how many people try to start up a church and it just never, it just won't take off. And most churches as startups die within the first two or three years. Most of them never make it to five years. This, he started, there was a religion. And Jesus' point was never to start a religion. It was to start a movement of movement. And a movement that would become so powerful that eventually people would begin to write or write about it. They would write about this movement that was so powerful, and they would document it, and they started putting these documents together, and we call it the Bible. But the movement was moving way before we had a Bible. The movement was powerful, and it was changing lives, and people were growing long before we had a Bible. So when I say that my foundation isn't just built on a book, my foundation is built on the man who lived and who died, and because of his death, burial, and resurrection, people wrote about it. They were so inspired, they wrote about it. And that gave us a book, and the book is powerful. But my foundation is Jesus Christ. So I want to end with this question as Elena comes up. Knowing all of that as the backdrop of us starting this series, let me ask you this question. Why doesn't everyone in America go to church? Hear me this morning because it has nothing to do with church attendance. But why doesn't everyone in America see Jesus as so irresistible? He's a fulfillment of God's promise to us. And through that promise, it's changed the world. He didn't come to take the law and the prophet, the Old Testament, and to just kind of tweak it and add to it and, and update it or whatever. He came and he said, okay, that's done. Now this new covenant I give you, this new covenant I lay out before you, 
Jesus came to unleash something new on the earth. And what's sad is that some 2,000 plus years later, churches are still trying to mix the old with the new. And when you mix the old with the new, let me tell you something, the church is resistible because it's nasty. You can't mix the old with the new. You just can't do that. If I was to give you a, a glass of water and, and take a little bitty piece of doggy do and drop it in there, you're not going to drink the water. It's nasty. You can't, even just a little bit, you just can't mix it. And, that, and, I, and that's the same thing. You can't mix the old with the new. It doesn't work. It taints the new. It doesn't make it reality and relevant. In light of everything that we're talking about, you were adopted into sonship. As sons and daughters who were adopted into sonship. Our goal is to exemplify the fact that Jesus is irresistible. You can't not love it. When you understand it, when you understand it, you can't not love it. So that's my challenge to you as a church, as a body. In Galatians 4, he says, he'll be born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law so that they might be adopted into sonship. See, on this side of the cross, we weren't born under that law. He had already taken care of that way before you were born. There are people all in these neighborhoods all around us who are still living like they were born under some kind of law. And they haven't become awakened to the fact that Jesus already took care of that. He already took care of that. Now they just need to recognize who he is, just like the Chinese girl at the beginning of the story. Once they see Jesus for who he is, they'll go, I was empty, but now I'm full. When you know what Jesus has truly done for you, you're empty, and then you're full. And it changes everything. Do you still have bad days? Sure. But the strength in those bad days, knowing who Jesus is, sure helps get you through them. Will you stand with me this morning? Father, I pray right now. God, as we, as we start back into this series, there's such a burning, burning passion in my spirit and in my heart. God, to be a church that is irresistible. Not so that people will come into the four walls, but so that people will see you. God, that, that we won't stand on our platform and, and, and preach hate and division and, and shove people down and push people away. God, but that we will become so attractive to people because when they see us, they see you. That when they hear us, God, they hear you. Jesus, I want you to know this morning, God, that I'm so crazy in love with you. And I'm so, so thankful that you kept your word. That you kept your word and you... You came and you gave us life and life to the fullest. Not only that, you gave us more promises over and over and over promises like you're faithful to complete the things that you started inside of us. The journey that has been birthed inside of us, God, you're, you're faithful to see us through that and walk us every step of the way. So God, this morning I stand in total all of you that from the very beginning of time though man over and over and over and over again has misrepresented you 
God, from the very beginning, you had us in mind. You had people in mind. And you've proven that. And you proved it when you sent your son. So we say thank you, God. We say thank you so much for that, for that sacrifice that was so great. Now we pray, God, every day that you give us strength to not try to live up to some mark or some standard, but that you give us strength every day to wake up and be a shining, living, breathing example of who you are. You said before you left, when you were sitting with the disciples, you said, now this final command I give you, that you love one another the way that I love you, and by that love, all men will know that you're mine. make that promise to you to try to do the very best I can at loving people the way you do every single day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.